The eating disorder a lot of the time is used as a form of punishment and it's so important during treatment and therapy to learn not to punish yourself. You know, and this is something that a lot of individuals struggles with, struggle with outside of eating disorders as well, but the eating disorder has become just this manifestation of needing to punish yourself. So when you can address that purpose, that's where a lot of the, the real magic in recovery starts to happen. You're listening to CWC Talks, a podcast from the University of Florida Counseling and Wellness Center. In each episode, we discuss mental health topics related to the experience of being a student and share the struggles and joys of taking care of your mental health while in college. Please note, CWC Talks is not a substitute for counseling and may be sensitive for people who have experienced trauma. All guests' views are their own and do not speak for the CWC, the University of Florida, or the mental health profession as a whole. In this episode, Dr. Sarah Nash speaks with CWC Aware Ambassadors, Callie Mims and Sarah Zarb, about eating disorders and recovery. If you're interested in learning more, an episode about food and body image is being simultaneously released with this episode. Hi, Callie. Welcome. Hey, Dr. Nash. It's great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. I'm glad you're with us. And hi, Sarah. Welcome to the show. Hi, Dr. Nash. Awesome to be here. Thanks for having me. Yes. So what are we talking about today? So today we are talking about eating disorders, especially prevalent among students on college campuses and the importance of being aware that it's an issue, you know, acknowledging the struggles that students with eating disorders on college campuses face and really talking about some of the resources offered on many college campuses across the United States for, you know, college students to take advantage of. And Callie and Sarah, you are both CWC Aware Ambassadors. What is that? What do you do? Yeah, so ultimately, um, we are mental health advocates. We're mental health advocates on campus, and we're here to decrease the stigma surrounding seeking mental health treatment, and as well as just provide knowledge about the resources offered at the Counseling and Wellness Center, which are very similar to numerous other colleges around the U.S., even around the world, and also just to be familiar with mental health topics. Ultimately, we're students as well, so just to be models of good behavior and attitudes uh, toward mental health is, is what we're here for. Thank you. Sarah, maybe we'll start with you and then go to Callie. Can you just tell us a little bit more about yourselves before we get started? Sure. So I am a sociology major here at UF. I love cooking. I love yoga. I'm religious, so I like prayer, meditation, and ultimately hanging out with family, friends, playing games. And I'm really passionate about eating disorders, and the research and discussion surrounding that. Thank you, Sarah. Callie, what about you? Yeah, so I am a fourth year at UF. I'm a double major in psychology and women's studies, and I enjoy um, running, hanging out with my cats. Recently, I've been um, hanging out with dogs a bit more, so that's very new for me. And watching uh, reality TV shows is also uh, one of my hobbies. I am also very passionate about you know, issues concerning eating disorders, body image, weight stigma, especially, and how these impact not only young females, but across the board, males, older individuals, people from different ethnic backgrounds, very, very interested in the research and literature on that. So I'm excited to get talking with y'all today. 
Thank you. So why do you think it's important to hear from other students about eating disorders, body image issues, even things, relationships to food or our bodies that wouldn't necessarily classify as an eating disorder, but is still a disrupted relationship with food and the body. Why is it important to involve UF students in this conversation? Um, I think it's important, especially important, just for that comforting factor, just sitting down with students to student, being that someone can see you, someone can hear you as you are. And also we see the importance of the empathy factor come into play. This will just like increase vulnerability among students, as well as between students and therapists, students and their families, and students and peers as well. I think just tacking on to what Sarah said there, college is a very strange transition for, you know, any young individual who's recent or previously been living with their parents or come from just a different walk of life into college. And that's that transition that is so strange and there's nothing quite like it sets you in a position where you're very vulnerable. You know, your eating habits, your exercise habits can take a toll because of this position. So it's, you know, very important, whether it's disordered eating in general or an actual diagnosable eating disorder and relationship with one's body that we need to really talk about when students are going through this a hard time or just a different time in a transitional phase. You said a few things that I want to highlight Callie and Sarah, and I think that you're talking about a transition, fundamentally that there's a transition into college where you're leaving home, coming to a new environment, a new environment that has a lot of bodies around you, right? And it's it's summer, it's Florida, you can see a lot of, of people's bodies. It's potentially more people in greater crowds than maybe you you were around in your high schools. I was also thinking the food environment is really different in college, right? You might be in a dorm with a tiny little refrigerator and a microwave. And so your choices of food are different. I was also wondering just about the the fact that most college students are single, they're young adults. I'm just thinking developmentally, it's it's a time in your life as young adults where you're potentially really curious about what other people think about you, your body. Do they find you attractive? Are you eligible? How do you compete with others for potential dating prospects? Oh, 100%. So you've just created the perfect storm there, Dr. Nash, for individuals who are getting new independence having to alter their food and and exercise habits anyways, Um, that social comparison, because that's, you know, so easy to do when you're surrounded by a bunch of other people who are your age, but don't look exactly like you because they come from all different walks of life, exactly is the perfect storm for, you know, developing disordered eating habits or an eating disorder in particular. So it's so important for us to be here for those individuals and understand um, the plight that they're facing when they're going through this transitional phase. I think for sure, um, there's definitely a lot of social societal pressure coming into even as body image, those factors really have been ingrained in our, in our history, especially in America. Callie and I both have seen people, like seen students and just the connection that they have with other students really be that bridge and be that fire for someone to contemplate um, even getting like eating disorder treatment 
or to even be that push, that potential, that, that glimmer of hope to get treatment. And so that's also another reason why it's so important for students um, to talk about these things because a person, a student, a peer could really be that potential bridge to the beginning of an eating disorder journey, recovery journey, really. You know, social comparison or, or socialization can be kind of this double-edged sword in that individuals, college students, very often engage in fat talk or um, can be triggering almost for, for other students who are having a hard time with their eating or body image issues. Um, but at the same time, you know, when we when we're able to open up and be vulnerable with other people, they can absolutely be the start of, of getting help or, or, or a better journey towards mental health in general, for sure. I was also wondering about students who may have struggled with an eating disorder or body image issues before college and maybe worked on that in some way, got treatment, or sometimes students will find their own creative ways to do some recovery without formal treatment. I've talked to some students who have said, I just managed to kind of stop, right? But then I'm wondering if coming to college can sometimes trigger back up some of those issues. Yes. So what we see for eating disorders in particular, a lot of the time within literature, within uh, our students that um, me and Sarah see struggling on campus and our position as AWARE ambassadors, um, is a lot of the time that relapse is incredibly, incredibly prevalent for these individuals. And so exactly what we were talking about, that transition for when you've got something all figured out when you're at home and you're going through treatment, now you have to come to college where you need a new therapist, uh, a new treatment team. You know, it can be so much easier, I think, for some individuals to say that's done, that's in a box, I'm better, and then not to realize that you're developing new habits, which can be pretty sneaky as compared to, you know, things that you already had in place beforehand. Are there also some payoffs or rewards for learning to restrict your calories or exercise so much that you appear to be underweight or low weight? Are there rewards for those behaviors in college? Yes, Dr. Nash, there's definitely rewards. There's definitely payoffs for sure. We see this like internal and external motivations. And this is especially true because of fat talk is so prevalent among college age students, especially. What is fat talk? Fat talk, I will kind of go about this with a few examples. Um, I'd say fat talk is someone commenting on whether food is healthy or unhealthy, which that's a whole other topic, but we might touch on that later. So just saying like, oh, you're eating really healthy today. That's fat talk in a sense where it's more focused on food. Um, then there's also fat talk in if someone is or has, you've noticed someone has lost weight, commenting on their physical appearance, definitely fat talk, as well as just self-sabotaging things that you tell yourself and you outwardly express that to your friends. Like, like I feel so fat today, or I feel like I'm bloated right now. I ate a bunch of ice cream last night and I feel fat today. I don't fit in this dress right. Yeah. And even just stuff like, oh, I had like a bowl of ice cream today. I need to have a salad now. Just little things like that. And is that kind of fat talk pervasive? 
Like, do you, because, yeah, can you speak about that, Callie? Absolutely. There's uh, rewards for fat talk in itself, even among college students who, you know, are not exhibiting disordered eating habits, don't have disordered thought mentalities, see it. We've seen it constantly within the media, our own friend groups, two girls standing in front of a mirror saying, oh, these jeans make me look so fat, or, oh, I can't go out today, I feel so fat. And it's talking about that, that really feeling of being fat when you wore those jeans yesterday and you didn't feel fat or and we see that those social rewards for that kind of behavior and the response, oh, no, you're not fat. You're not fat. Stop that. It's almost like this feedback cycle that's become very vicious and, and almost negative and, and self-perpetuating. Young college females are often seen engaging in this kind of talk to either, you know, have some sort of response telling them, assuaging their, their worst fears in a way, which is that you know, can you imagine saying, you know, these jeans make me look so fat and your friends saying, oh yeah, they absolutely do. You know, that would never happen. So it's, it's very much a reward cycle um, in which you are really seeking affirmation that you don't look or feel as bad as you do. And I think really it's a, it's a very internal thing. Very rarely do students think that they look fat in everyday cycles. It's more of a based on how they're feeling on the inside right now. But it's, it's very interesting because the answer to I feel fat today or, or look at these jeans make me look so fat or I look so fat right now is almost never, how are you feeling? Are you okay? What's going on inside? It's almost always shut up. You don't look fat. Callie, you make some really awesome points. Definitely hearing this, like it's a ritual, right? It's a ritual between college students, especially. It's this thing where you expect, you know what you're going to say, but the irony of it really is that by you verbalizing, like, I, I feel fat, I like, or even saying I am fat, that's actually then like kind of eroding even at your self-esteem, no matter what the person says, you know, no matter what the person says. And there's so many negative aspects to that as well for the person receiving the fat talk because, oh, well, you know, Sarah looks, think Sarah thinks she looks fat today. Well, if Sarah yeah. thinks she looks fat, then I must be fat, you know? Yeah. So it's, it's, this negative cycle for both the recipient and the um, the giver of the of the fat top the communicator. So it really is, and the and going off of that, these perceptions can, like you were saying, be like just be implanted in the receiver and the giver as well. And it might not show up right away. That's the thing. It might not show up right away. You might not you might not even develop an eating disorder. However, it definitely might erode at your self-esteem, you know, or come out and come like later in life and kind of appear in that way. My mind goes a couple different places. One to all of the fat talk that I have been engaging in without even realizing it. Like during the pandemic, I have been alternating, I think, by trying to over-control what I'm eating because I'm freaked out. I have not struggled with an eating disorder, but I have struggled with lots of other things in my life. Just to kind of over-controlling my, my food as a way of dealing with the uncertainty versus then kind of go going the other direction and not not putting any, just just eating all the things, right? And really, that's fine. Like, that's fine. But being in meetings with colleagues and talking about, oh, I had like two bowls of ice cream last night, or there's a, there's a judgment there in the way that I talk about that and how that 
is just ubiquitous. Like it's, it's become so normalized if you're going to eat something that's pleasurable or rich to bash yourself about it afterwards. Yeah, no. And this definitely goes, goes to the fat talk side of particularly when we're talking about food, food as an inherent moral or immoral stance, just because if, if someone says, Oh, I, I did good today or I did bad today, you know, and, and usually what happens is I did good today is, is with more nutritious foods. So like a salad, some protein. Um, I did bad today is usually with, uh, like you were saying, Dr. Nass, like ice cream, like a couple bowls of ice cream, some chocolate. And when we start to kind of attach these, these moralities to food is really when we start to think of it. And when we start to kind of, when the shame and the worthlessness starts to really like come in, because it's no longer a thing about, I feel like having this and this is, this is what I want to eat. It's about like, okay, I did good. I did bad today. And then that ignites a cycle of restricting binging and the whole diet paradox really so is it this i i love what you just shared sarah thank you uh, is it like once we start to tie food to morality or a sense of if i eat well whatever that is i'm putting that in air quotes right if i eat well if i eat healthy if i eat good then i am good does it become linked like I am good or people will people will like me, people will approve of me? Like what are some of those other connections that start to form? Like why is it so important to eat well? Why is that so important? I think morality is oh a huge part of of the eating disorder mentality. Um there's been lots of research and, and literature touching on that topic. Um, I think those thoughts are kind of almost normalized within diet culture uh, within the United States as well as in, in our obesophobic society. But at the same time, when an individual develops an eating disorder, those thoughts get blown up out of proportion. Um, and eating not only has a sense of morality attached to it, but also a physical a feeling sense um, attached to it to, for those individuals. So like if you feel full, you're ba- you feel bad? Yeah, that's a that's a great example. Feeling full and then you have the the feelings of shame and guilt and worthlessness are often picked up a lot and in the emotional aspect of of eating disorders and um you know, having those attached to food, then it becomes out of the norm of our typical diet culture. And everyone feels those to a certain extent because of the society that we're in. But then it's it's just when it gets blown out of proportion that it becomes a problem. Like it just starts to take over your life. Exactly. Yeah. Bouncing off of what Callie was saying with this whole restricting and um, they think dieting a lot is about willpower. Um, when in reality, we have our biological hunger cues as well. And so really, if we go against those, it's just going to be like this continuous cycle. And the thing that can start this continuous cycle is identifying our food as moral or immoral. I think it's super important to note as well that those feelings of guilt and shame and disgustingness uh, around eating are not just characteristic of, of anorexia, which typically is the referred to eating disorder when talking to the general public. They, when you say an eating disorder, they think of someone who has anorexia. So I think those it's so important to note that those feelings are common among anorexia, bulimia, binge eating disorder, as well as 
you know, many other disorders that are classified within other specified eating disorder category. So um, you can you can really just be on the spectrum there. It doesn't have to be as extreme to still be a, a problem absolutely. for somebody. Absolutely. Yeah. You don't need to have a diagnosable eating disorder or fit into those perfect little categories to have, admit you have a problem and, and need treatment. I think it's so important to acknowledge that for you know, anyone who, who is struggling. There's this tendency for individuals with eating disorders to think, well, I'm, I'm not bad enough. I'm not sick enough. I'm not thin enough. I'm not this enough. I'm not enough in general. So when we put these little neat little boxes on diagnoses, it really prevents a lot of people from going to seek treatment. I think that's such an important point because I was thinking about all those little boxes and there are stereotypes about who's even allowed to have an eating disorder, right? Who do, who looks like, who's the typical eating disorder person? What would, what would you say about those stereotypes? What are the stereotypes and what is the truth? Yes. So there's lots of new literature that's just coming out about this. But the stereotypical person with an eating disorder is young, is white, is female. It's kind of a perpetuating cycle where that comes from. In fact, that's the demographic that goes to seek treatment the most. And then because of that, that gets a lot of research samples are taken from the treatment literature. Um, so then they say, oh, yes, young white females, these are the people with eating disorders. But actually, we're finding out now that we're doing mass studies across ethnic groups, across gender as well, that any ethnic group um, is subject to an eating disorder. Any gender can develop an eating disorder. It's not solely restricted to these young white females. In fact, recent literature is coming out and saying, well, you know, males oftentimes experience eating disorders differently differently than females, and we don't have enough categories to, to put them into. They don't fit neatly into anorexia, bulimia, or a binge eating disorder. So they just end up not seeking treatment, you know, and it's also the stigma around these other ethnic groups going to seek treatment because within their families, within their culture, it's not very masculine for a male, and I'm putting air quotes around that, to have an eating disorder, or those from cultures who, whose families just don't acknowledge or don't accept um, mental health treatment or mental health struggles, it's, it, it almost becomes a very closeted thing. If you think it's hard to have an eating disorder as a young white female, which it absolutely is, um, when you tack on not being represented or even you know acknowledged as a demographic that could struggle, it adds that extra barrier to getting treatment and, and getting help. Thank you, Callie. So let's talk about treatment. What are some examples of types of treatment that someone might receive who is struggling with whether it's a diagnosable eating disorder or just a really disrupted relationship with body and food? What are some of the types of treatments available and how does treatment, like what does treatment focus on? There's multiple treatments. Something that is starting in the beginning of your um, eating disorder recovery journey, you do see kind of that basic therapy setting, uh, as well as group therapy can be very, very powerful. Just because, again, we talk about how you're connecting, you're um, empathizing with students and peers who are going through the same thing. And so that can really be an essential piece in an individual's recovery. And if you are kind of Deeper down, I'd say, in more ingrained in 
in your eating disorder, there is inpatient and outpatient treatment options as well. And so inpatient treatment would be where you are at a facility and uh, you're there 24-7 of the time and you work with a therapist, you work with most likely a, a dietitian just to kind of to kind of help that. And outpatient is similar, however, you go into the facility and then you're not there 24-7 and then you just you come out and you like would go back home or to wherever you're residing. And so it's more I'd say an informal kind of less intense treatment. So the, and that's like the type, the form that therapy can take. What about family? Does family fit into this at all, Sarah? Definitely, definitely, definitely family does fit into this. I don't think I can stress enough how, how much of an impact family has from when an individual is growing up. Like we mentioned before the fat talk, just like the, cultural and then still beliefs that parental figures can have on an individual can be implanted in them. Like, first of all, it can like prevent them from seeking treatment, um, whether that's just them not being able to, to go and get treatment, them not even being allowed to go and get treatment, or even to the point where they think that they don't need to get treatment or that this like isn't an issue. So family is a number one system that needs to to be supportive of an individual who's going through an eating disorder and throughout treatment whether whatever form it is inpatient outpatient cognitive behavioral group family it's it's crucial for family to be present and to really support and to show show support within the individual so i'm hearing that there's a lot of there's a lot of types of therapy and th there's degrees of how intense the therapy needs to be. Like maybe you need to go live someplace and be constantly around other folks who are also working on their recovery at first, or maybe you just work with a therapist who's got a lot of experience with this and can help involve your family and other people in your life as appropriate. So there's a lot of options. Group can be really nice even outpatient group so that you're around other people who are, are working on these issues. I'm curious, what are some of the common underlying themes that emerge from successful eating disorder treatment? Like what is it that people have to look at and work on and address inside themselves and in their their families and their like networks in order to really move into recovery. I think one of the, the great ways to look at eating disorders um, is that it serves a purpose. And I think one of the overall purposes of, of, of treatment or one of the things that's addressed in each different treatment is identifying that purpose and figuring out ways to use other things to serve that purpose. Um, so a really common one and that you is a topic that we talked about in uh, season one of the podcast actually with um, perfectionism and also learning to like yourself. The eating disorder a lot of the time is used as a form of punishment and it's so important during treatment and therapy to learn not to punish yourself. You know, and this is something that a lot of individuals struggles with, struggle with outside of eating disorders as well, but the eating disorder has become just this manifestation of 
needing to punish yourself. So when you can address that purpose, that's where a lot of the the real magic in recovery starts to happen. So when you're going into therapy and when you're going into treatment, when someone is displaying signs, it's never about the food. And that's, that's the one thing that I think is really important to focus on because a lot of times individuals with eating disorders, even family members as well, will look at an individual um, who's displaying signs and symptoms and will be like, oh, wow, like you're, you're eating like this or, or just different judgments as well as individuals can, can apply those judgments to themselves. And we need to understand that it's about the deeper rooted issues. Whether you're going into treatment initially, you do need to work on those food behaviors. However, it's, it's never about that. When we talk about eating disorders as, as not being about the food, I think that's what makes them so interesting to, to study and to treat and to, for people to have to experience that. Because a lot of the time, it's compared to alcoholism the addiction, the need to restrict or to binge, the cravings that to engage in these behaviors that individuals with eating disorders experience. But I think one of the, the key things that always comes to my mind when, when it's compared to that is that, you know, alcoholics can be sober for the rest of their lives. People with eating disorders have to eat again. And essentially an, an integral part of treatment as well is, is learning how to eat. And that is so strange for someone who is 20, 30, 40, 50 to have to learn how to do. I mean, that's something that, you know, most of the population learned at three, four, five years old and was able to do that no problem. They're very intense experiences for people to go through. And I think being able to put yourself in someone's shoes and look at it from that perspective is absolutely important to not only individuals who have a friend or a family member suffering from an eating disorder, but also for the rest of the population as well and to decrease the stigma around these experiences. You talked about learning to eat and like what that makes me think of is really healing your relationship with food because you have to have a relationship with food. Unlike alcohol, where I actually two years ago stopped drinking entirely because I was had too much of a relationship with alcohol. But what I'm mostly able to do is just, it's out of sight, out of mind. We don't keep it in the house. Like I don't go out to bars anymore. And for the most part, I just don't have to deal with alcohol. And that makes it pretty nice, right? But food is really, I didn't have to heal my relationship with alcohol. I just had to break up with alcohol and stay broken up with alcohol. It's different with food. Food's always there. And is that where we get into this thing that's called intuitive eating? Yes, it is. Yeah. Intuitive eating definitely plays a major role in the healing process for making peace with food. Ultimately, it's tapping into your inner self, into your inner child. As mentioned before, children really do have this like innate ability to just eat uh, whatever because societal pressures aren't like they, they're not formed. They don't have those pressures. They don't have those norms instilled in them. And so that's what happens when like, when a child is full, like they're definitely full. And so intuitive eating is just really ultimately tapping into this, into this inner child, into your inner, really your hunger cues. And it's a combination of your cognitive, your emotional, as well as your behavioral kind of attributes and relationships to food. There's a really awesome book highly, highly recommend. This is a book for anyone really who has lost touch with food because our culture is so diet infused. 
And it's just, it's intuitive eating. It's a revolutionary program that works. And this book is, is so helpful. And the first step really is to reject the diet mentality. And so once, once an individual does that, once you know, and, and I want to be here and I want to say, as a student, diets don't work. Like I've seen it happen. I've seen it happen. Diets do not work. And so I'm here to tell you all this, that diets do not work. And so once you allow yourself that freedom from the diets, when you allow yourself that ability to just reject that mentality is when you can ultimately begin your path towards healing towards food. Sarah, you described that so beautifully. And I know Sarah knows quite a bit about this. We uh, promote it as aware ambassadors on our college campus fairly often, but it's really the essence of intuitive eating comes down to taking away all of those emotional words that we talked about earlier that are attached to food. I love how Sarah said, yeah, it's like being a three-year-old again, because a three-year-old doesn't know what a good food and a bad food is. They know, well, ice cream's a good food because I like ice cream and carrots are a good food because I like carrots, just as an example. And I think, you know, that is one of those things to reject that diet culture, like Sarah was talking about, is so, so difficult, especially when you've lived so many years with it ingrained, not only in yourself, but all around you and rejecting it. It's the same as rejecting any other social stigma. It takes time and it takes effort, but it's something that we should all be working on together as a collective because I think, I honestly think that intuitive eating is going to make us healthier, happier individuals as well as a society. As I listen to both of you, I become aware of places in my own life and my relationship to myself and how much I've absorbed diet culture that I want to take another look at. So thank you for helping me realize that even though this isn't something that's ever been one of my major struggle points, there's still, it's so internalized anyway, and that it's something that I could benefit from, again, just working on deeper healing around myself. So I want to thank you for that. Secondly, I just want to say, I imagine that someone who has struggled and is you know, maybe picking up this book on intuitive eating and wants to find out about it, might be terrified that if I take away all the shoulds and the good and bad food judgments and good and bad me judgments, if I take all that away, I'm just going to eat ice cream all the time. I'm just going to do that. And that, I can't do that. That then, then what? Then I'm just you know, all of the things that I'm most afraid of will, will come true. So really what that is, that, that's not true. For intuitive eating, yes, you might, an individual might have a period where they will specifically kind of hone in on, on a type of food. Like but, foods that have been forbidden in the past or the, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So like forbidden foods, so uh, foods that they haven't let themselves have because of diets, because of, of other external things. And the interesting thing of that is it's just, it's the thing where if you can't have something, you want it even more. And that's just how the intuitive eating process and how that really connects with dieting because dieting really is restriction. And it's restricting either a type of food, a behavior of food, a certain amount of food. And so once you kind of put all those restrictions aside, and once you allow yourself fully, the food will not seem as enticing, really. Like, and 
one will be amazed at how your body will just balance out really like yes you may like gain weight yes you might lose weight and that's that's the thing with recovery too and with this intuitive eating process is your body's going to change your body's going to fluctuate and that's going to be stuff that's going to happen however if you are intuitively eating your body will level out and your body will be what it's meant to be really as i hear you sarah i'm just thinking it sounds so much like it's about learning to trust again like to trust something that's inherent and innate and good inside of you that can guide you in intuitively to use that word but but like repairing a sense of fundamental trust with yourself okay i was just thinking that too dr nash it came up a lot when sarah was talking and i was thinking back and i thought you know how can we get through an entire talk about eating disorders and and not bring up control and and the necessity for control in in the development of an eating disorder especially when you're transitioning to college you know that's a huge factor in and purpose for the eating disorder to to be around so this learning how to intuitively eat is about letting go of that sense of control and trusting and trusting in your body which the eating disorder has made you feel has betrayed you for years and years and years and years you know this is one of the hardest things I think an individual can, can do. I mean, when we're talking about it here, trying to contextualize and fathom this, it just, you know, recovery is hard. And that's why it takes years. That's why individuals suffer for years. So I think it, it really brings about the importance of entering treatment early and encouraging people to, to go seek treatment as soon as they identify that there's even an essence of a problem. Because the more ingrained it becomes, the more you feel like you need to rely on that sense of control. I was just thinking of hearing professionals, hearing different people say, there's kind of this pendulum, like, are, are you always in recovery from eating disorder? Can you never be recovered fully? Or can you be fully recovered? And really the answer to that question is that there is recovery in sight for sure. You might have maybe some thoughts and those might appear. A beautiful thing about an individual uh, recovered from an eating disorder is that these individuals have a benefit that not a lot of people have. And so they can use food kind of in a way to be like, oh, like this is going on in my life. And so when an individual kind of looking at it, this is more from, you know, a positive perspective. When you're looking at it and when you're going into into something, when you're recovered from an eating disorder, if some food stuff maybe start to like resurface, that's a really cool sign to just be like, okay, I need to take a step back and I need to really look at these rooted issues, like what is going on internally, what is going on externally. Maybe I just got in a fight with, with my friend. Maybe I'm having relationship issues. Maybe I'm in another transition. Is so beautiful to see in an individual who is in the process and who has recovered from eating disorder. It's almost like the when your food stuff pops up again, it's an early warning sign or it's like a little, almost you can make friends with that. It's like your yeah. guide. It's like the part of you that, that alerts you, hey, there's something that needs deeper attention. Yeah, for sure. As we get to the end of our talk, is there anything else that you would want to add? Students who are listening to this 
and thinking, gosh, I heard some things today that I can relate to and I'm really scared. I mean, I think with this topic, it's one you can talk about for hours and hours and hours. So if you're listening and there was something that you maybe clicked on this topic and wanted to hear discussed and it, and it didn't come up, utilize all the resources you have on hand. Let this talk inspire you to go to YouTube or go to any blogs or, or even some like self-care Instagram posts from NIDA or other you know eating disorder ambassadors out there. And take this as an opportunity to learn that we as students, we see you, we know you're there, we hear you, and we're going to encourage you right now to go get help if you think you need it. As soon as there's an issue that's, that you know deep down that you might need some help, do everything in, you can, your, in your power to, to go get help. That first step is always so difficult to take, but if you can get there, it, it is the first step, and, and you've gotten the ball rolling, and that is so, so, so important. Thank you, Callie. I hear, I hear the emotion and the passion in your voice. And I really appreciate that your sincerity in, in that. Uh, Sarah, what about you? Last words? Yes, you can recover. Recovery is in sight and diets do not work. And that is the two things that I really have to say. And bouncing off of Callie, you are enough you're heard, you're listened to, you're seen, and go and take that first step. It'll be so worthwhile. Thank you both so much for having this conversation with me. And I will follow up with you to get your recommendations, not just for that intuitive eating book, but other places on the internet that are healthy and body positive that you can recommend students follow up with as well. So thank you, Callie and Sarah, for being here today for this important conversation. Thank you so much for having us, Callie. It was lovely to be by, by your side as well during this. Yeah, great to talk to y'all. Thanks for listening. You can find CWC Talks on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever podcasts are found. Please leave us a rating and review us. Email us at cwc-talks at ufl.edu with your feedback and suggestions for future episodes. Show notes, resources, and more can be found at counseling.ufl.edu slash cwctalks.